This is an audio sermon recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ in Alma, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth. We would love for you to worship with us at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1808 Highway 71 North in Alma, Arkansas. Thank you for the warmth of your love and welcome. Thank you for the prayers, for the opportunity to study God's Word with you. This is not the only series I've ever built on peace or harmony or getting along or whatever. It's built over the years, several sermons, built a series or two on this sort of thing. And in preparation for our time together this weekend, I pushed all that aside and started with a fresh and blank. These parents, so to speak, they're built from the ground up. And in the prayerful process of that study and that pursuit of why hope will be a blessing to you, there are some things that occur to me that seem pretty clear in my mind. Number one, there's a pretty good chance that I, I'm not going to tell you something that you don't already understand on some level. Maybe there'll be a fresh angle or perspective, a different way of explaining or something that will bring light. But there's a place for reminders. Number two, there is a big difference between a ceasefire and peace and harmony. And a ceasefire is not peace. And peace is greatly beloved, but there's a difference between that and harmony. Okay. And what this is really about is building strong harmony. And something else that occurs to me is peace and ultimately harmony are things that we have to work for constantly. In your marriage, your home, in the Lord's church, in your workplace, in your life, your life associates, your neighbors, everybody. You've got to work at it constantly. And to sustain the energy to work at it constantly, I hope the treatment of the things that we're going to study this weekend will help renew and refresh you to do that in your life as a child of God and certainly in the work of the church here at Alma. We're going to study conflict resolution. And tonight's study is going to focus on things we find from Scripture that tend to be the source of conflict. Let's open up our study with a sad inevitability of the fact that there will be conflict. James 3 and 2 says, We all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man able also to bridle the whole body. James more or less has a, a sort of a sarcastic way of saying, look, you're going to mess up in how you act, and you're going to mess up in what you say. You're going to hurt people's feelings. It's just going to happen. If you don't do that, well, then you can control everything and be perfect. That's more or less what he's saying. So the unfortunate reality of life is that there are going to be times that someone hurts my feelings, and that I hurt their feelings. And then when we figure out we hurt each other's feelings, we're going to have our feelings hurt, that they dare be hurt by me, and they're going to you know, feel the same towards me. It's just inevitable. 
learning to live free of hurting people we don't want to hurt is an impossible goal. Okay? But we're going to set it. And we're going to live for it. We're going to work for it. And while we work for it, we're going to, from Scripture, accept God's construct of coping skills of what to do when we are hurt. Or when something does offend us or bother us or however you want to put it. And we're going to do that with an understanding that sometimes it's a comparatively small thing that's bothering us. And sometimes we're bothered by things that are really genuinely serious and they're things that are worth being bothered over. And we're going to approach all of them with the same godly framework of coping solutions. And being able to do that effectively, I'm convinced, requires that we understand where our conflict comes from. When I'm hurt, when I'm bothered, when there's a disruption of our harmony or a disruption of our peace, why? What's going on inside my soul that constitutes my part in that? What did I bring to the table that allowed that to happen? Uh, a couple of sisters in the church back in Central Oklahoma, some of them I read a book that talks about not being able to be offended. Maybe some of y'all have heard of that book, Unoffendable or something like that. I, I don't even know the name of the author. I've just heard someone talk about it. And as they talk about it, they talk about having this goal of being able to bring a spiritual wellness to the table so that you just can't hurt them. You just can't offend them. Well, they understand you're never going to get there completely. But that's their goal so that they become a person that it takes more and more and more to be able to hurt them. And I guess the idea behind looking at what is the source of conflict, the more we can identify the source of conflict and work on eliminating or at least diminishing those things that are the source, then whatever in me that I'm bringing to the table, then, then I, if I can diminish that, then at least I can you know, cut down on my part of it. So let's talk about those things. Number one, I believe the number one cause of strife between people is pride. Proverbs 13 and 10 says, By pride comes nothing but strife, but with the well-advised is wisdom. We understand clearly what pride looks like when it's an open haughtiness and an open arrogance. That's easy to recognize. Okay? We understand how that kind of pride causes strife. <clears throat> But among us, as children of God, frankly, it's pretty rare to have a conflict that is rooted in someone's open, unrestrained arrogance. That just, I don't, I've seen that a little bit, you just don't see that a lot. I have often said, as a reminder to myself, as an encouragement to others, <clears throat> that pride wears a mask. And that's the kind of pride that can be such a source of conflict is where pride has disguised itself and made it harder for me to see it. And it's that little itch in the back of my mind that can't stand to be wrong. And if I am wrong, it can't stand for somebody else to recognize it. And if they do recognize it, then it can't stand for them to talk to me about it. You know, it's the more subtle manifestations of pride 
but it's still pride just the same. And such things are the source of strife. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 28 and 25, he who has a proud heart stirs up strife, but he who trusts in the Lord will be prospered. Now look at the contrast here. I think you're probably aware that Old Testament poetry especially, Proverbs and Psalms especially, which you'll find this throughout the Bible, these passages are often constructed in parallel phrases. And you can lay these parallel phrases side by side and learn from looking at the parallel phraseology. For example, that first reference, by pride comes nothing but strife, but with the well-advised is wisdom. So on the one hand, you have the well-advised, and that's the pride. And then on the other hand, you've got the strife, of course, corresponds or is the opposite of the wisdom. So a well-advised person is the opposite of the prideful person. And walking in wisdom is the opposite of walking in strife. Now come to the next reference. The proud of heart stirs up strife. All right. Now look at the antithesis. It's called or the antithetic parallelism. But the one who trusts in the Lord, that's the opposite of the one who has a proud heart, will be prospered. That's the opposite of having strife. Okay. So by looking at the parallel structure, we can learn more deeply what he means. And so when he talks about being proud of heart, that's in, in, in the mind of that particular teaching, that is the opposite of someone who trusts in the Lord. Now, if I were to say what's the opposite of pride, I would have echoed back humility. And, and that's a fair and true statement that could be biblically substantiated. But from another point of view, the opposite of pride is trusting in the Lord. Well, now wait a minute. How does that work? Well, if I'm not trusting in the Lord, who am I trusting in? Somewhere along the way, that circles back around the south. And if I've got that going on in my heart and someone else comes up and calls me in question for something that I've said or something that I've done, and self is where I have to put my trust, it's not this open, haughty arrogance, but it's a kind of pride. And so that failure to trust in the Lord, all of a sudden that's blossomed into me getting my feelings hurt. Because they assaulted the one that I trust in. See how that works. And it's cleverly disguised. It doesn't look like what we think of as arrogance and pride and haughtiness, but yet it's pride just the same. So, I need to be mindful of that and look for ways where my pride might be a source of strife. And here's where this comes in as we work on resolving conflict. This is something my wife and I talk about off and on from time to time. In fact, we were having a conversation about this just the other day. A question come up about something that happened that disturbed both of us. You know, so a relationship strain that disturbed both of us. And we in discussing it, felt like we had correctly identified a problem that someone had that had contributed to this situation. And my wife began to express our frustrations over that problem and having that problem. And I said, you're right. Now let's stop for a moment. Here's what we have to do when we encounter this. To fight our pride, we've got to make ourselves stop and ask ourselves, when have I done that? When have I been that way? Not if, but when. 
Now, if I'm dealing with a conflict and another person has a problem, I need to be aware of that. I need to be able to deal with that. That's something we're going to talk about this weekend. But I need to make my dominant thoughts center around on, okay, if that upsets me so much, then I need to make sure I'm not doing that. So I'm going to stop and I'm going to humbly search my heart and my recollections of things that I've said and things that I've done. And it's a careful exercise of an outright assault upon my own pride. I'm going to ask myself, David, when have you done that thing that that guy just did that got on your nerves? In what way are you doing that to others? And I'm going to tell you something. I don't like it. I don't want that to be the headlines of the day. I want the headlines of the day to be how much somebody else was wrong. And how I was a victim. That's, that's what I want to think about. But instead, I've got to accept that, okay, maybe I was victimized, maybe there's a problem there, maybe we need to deal with that, but first and foremost, I'm going to turn the negative attention on myself. And pride is what gets in our way of doing that. And with pride comes anger. A detailed biblical study of anger will reveal that anger roots in pride. Proverbs 15 and 18 says, A wrathful man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to angers allays contention. God has got control of those emotions, control of the anger. That's the one that can step in and allay and put to rest contention. A big part of what we've got to think about is emotional control. That's going to be a, a, a kind of a big part of our study this evening, emotional we're thinking of anger as a negative emotion, and that's something that we've got to contain because if we don't, the Bible tells us it will cause strife. And I hope it's obvious to us all how <coughs> anger can cause strife. And if anger is bad, then jealousy is worse. That's more or less what he says in Proverbs 27 and 4. Wrath is cruel. I mean, anger is a problem in causing problems. Wrath is cruel and anger a torrent. But who is able to stand before jealousy? Jealousy, that's where you have envy of the other person for something that they have. Whether that thing is status, achievement, possessions, a friendship, someone's affections, any number of things. And when that jealousy brews up, this passage portrays that as something that can even be more destructive than wrath. Wow, how does that even work? Well, it would be obvious if the jealousy expressed itself in wrath. What's the root of that jealousy? You know, God's a jealous God. He's got a right to be jealous. He's God. And where the scriptures teach us about God's jealousy, it's basically dealing with the fact that God will not have his people replacing him. He'll not have his people worshiping other gods. So jealousy is when you're supposed to be worshiping me, but you're not. And God has a right to that because He's the Creator. He's the, he's the God of heaven, the Almighty God. And just because of who and what He is, He is entitled to our worship and adoration. And I'm not. And so when I'm jealous, I'm stepping in and in pride taking the place of God. Oh, I don't want someone to worship me. 
We don't call it worship. We call it getting our way. We've just repressed it. People must bring us their humble oblation of letting me have what I want. And if I can't have it, I get jealous. Because things aren't going my way. And this lowercase g God is not getting his way. And so here comes his wrath. And here comes problems. Well, that makes it sound all pretty ugly. It doesn't look obvious that way on the outside. But when I find instances where I'm struggling with somebody, I mean, I've got to be real with you. When I find instances where there's a persistent struggle with somebody or with a situation, very often I unhappily find at the center of that that somehow or another I'm not getting something that I expect to get. And that doesn't mean that maybe, you know, maybe there is another problem there that needs to be dealt with. Maybe there's something that needs to be confronted. Maybe there's some sin that needs to be addressed. That doesn't change any of that. That just reminds me, if I'm going to work on not having conflict in the first place, I've got to constantly, rigorously work at my pride, which will precipitate anger and jealousy. Another thing the scriptures tell us are a source of conflict is carnality. Being carnal. He chided, Paul chided the church at Corinth because they had a lot of strife there. And he said, I'll tell you the cause of all this stuff. He said, you're still carnal. For where there's envy, strife, and divisions among you are not carnal and behaving like mere men. Now carnal, that's like the Spanish word carne, which is meat or flesh. That means fleshly. So on a surface level, you might think, well, how does you know, the flesh, how does that cause or contribute to strife? Well, in the context of this discussion, it's about thinking like a person who serves the flesh versus thinking like a person who serves the spirit. And those are two entirely different mindsets. Go read, what's it, Romans 8? The carnal mind is not subject to the law of God. Neither indeed can be. When you're thinking like the flesh, with the flesh, letting the flesh govern your way of thoughts, you'll never consistently be able to fall in line with the Lord God. And what does the spiritual mind do? Well, it's life and peace, he tells us in Romans. But he also talks about that spiritual mind putting to death deeds the body. Well, when I think about putting to death the deeds of the body or the lust of the flesh, that's pretty obvious when I'm over there in my head in Galatians 5 with this thinking, yeah, we're not supposed to commit fornication, we're not supposed to commit adultery, we're not supposed to you know, commit drunkenness or lasciviousness. Those works of the flesh, it's kind of obvious, isn't it? But some of those works of the flesh are things that have to do with, with strife and envy and bickering and quarreling and not getting along. Those are key to the flesh too, and they're key to fleshly thinking because they're key to emotions that come from the flesh. And this gets down to learning to control the emotions by approaching them with a spiritual perspective instead of a fleshly perspective. And those emotions will bring with it then a kind of selfishness with its selfish demands. Philippians 2, 1 through 4, therefore, if there is any consolation of Christ, 
if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. So a favorite passage that we turn to when we're talking about not being selfish, and for obvious reasons. And look at what's key to this idea of not having selfish ambition. Look what's key to the idea of not looking out for my own interests, but instead looking out for the interests of others. What's key to that is love. One accord. One mind. Affection. Mercy. I'll never learn to love as long as I live in Africa. I'll never learn to have consistent, persistent mercy and affection for God's gentle people as long as I've got my own agenda at heart. And if that agenda involves me getting my way and me looking right and, and you know me let's make sure that the bad light is cast on me if it involves that I'm going to lose and all these kinds of negative spiritual factors and negative emotions are going to stir up in my flesh and well up and walk arms with my pride and cause strife and it comes down to hate Proverbs 10 and 12 says hate stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. Now I know hate, you know, we talk about hate, we think of that as a very strong negative emotion. It is. But hate doesn't always look like gritting your teeth and quaking in absolute malice and malignity for someone. Hate doesn't always look like Sometimes hate looks like, well, I've got to get in the left lane and get around that guy and look and, and see if he looks as stupid as he's driving. <laughs> yeah, I'm talking about the guy that just cut me off on the freeway. Sometimes hate looks like that. Sometimes hate just looks like not loving. It's not always the big, sinister, malicious thing. Sometimes it looks a little different. It's a lot like pride. It can be very cleverly disguised. I mean, there's such a thing as righteous indignation against sin and a genuine, fervent, God-loving, God-honoring desire to want to help each other and deal with problems. But sometimes that sours into a contempt for others. And I'm kind of in a twisted way, glad to have one hand because I'll be sure to have someone look down on me. So I can sort of be like the guy in the temple and say, boy, I'm glad I'm not like that fellow. It's just repressed hate. And those kind of things and the, the emotions that are associated with that, that's all part of living in a house of flesh. And that was part of our prayer tonight together, wasn't it? is that we live in these houses of flesh 
and in this frame we're subject to these emotions and we've got to learn to control them. <clears throat> uh, I think it was Easter Sunday when I was hearing Brian preach. And controlling emotions, I don't guess you would say, was the main theme of his sermon. He talked about time, but controlling emotions was something that he talked about and he had said some things. I went back and listened to it again later. I was really excited to hear that because I needed it. And I'm convinced more and more in, in learning to navigate challenges in life, a lot of it has to do with learning to control my emotions. That doesn't mean get rid of them. They're there by God's design. They're there for a purpose and a place, but I've got to learn to control them. In the moment we let our emotions take hold of, of the helm of the ship and start making the decisions, we're going to be in trouble. We're going to be lost at sea. And it's going to get up. So when I think about my interaction with others within the framework of the flesh and these emotions, I'm thinking about the things that I say and I do and I'm thinking how I receive what others say and how I perceive what they do. It's not just about what I'm doing, but it's how I'm choosing to perceive what others do. Because I might look at their actions or listen to their words with a jaded point of view that assigns bad motives to them when they really mean the best or they're trying to do something good. And when I let my emotions define how I interact with others and what I say and do and how I receive and perceive what they're saying and what they're doing, I'm going to have problems. And I know you've talked about this, different ones of your teachers have in some of your lessons because when I listen to your podcast, I hear this come up from time to time. How a heart is desperately wicked, you know, who can know it? And, you know, who so trusts his heart? It's a, it's a foolish thing. Those kind of passages that give us very sober warnings about our emotions. They're there for a purpose. It's not that we're to be rid of them, but we've got to be careful that we don't follow them. That instead, we make our decisions in a different way. And that's based on godly conviction. And I'm going to receive that other person's words and actions instead of with all these negative fleshly emotions and things that are sources of strife. Instead of doing that, I'm going to receive and perceive them from the standpoint of godly conviction. And that means my conviction that my, my interests are set aside. We're, we're all about what glorifies God. And I'm putting their needs above my needs. And I'm not going to give in to the urge to always feel like that I'm right and I've got the answers and I wasn't the guy that helped mess up, okay? And then when I think about what I say to them and what I do to them, it's not about saying and doing to them in a way that gratifies my need to make them feel care of You know, I really got them. Well, I really put them in their place, you know. Well, maybe they need to hear something that's corrective in nature. But I need to make sure if I'm going to be the one that approaches that moment and offers that correction, that I've got to do it out of godly conviction, not as a response to my emotions of how they make me feel with their sin. And those are two totally different worlds. The one world where I'm going to offer them something corrective and maybe say words that rightly speak to their problem, but do it with my emotions as a springboard, man, that's going to get ugly in a hurry. And it can get ugly in a hurry, and I can feel right about it because of the back of my head. Well, I'm saying it's right. 
It's true, but they don't like it. Let them choke on it, you know? That's when we're letting our emotions govern how we interact with others. Instead, we've got to interact with others based on our godly conviction. How about we labor over what to say, whether or not to say, how we say. How about we pour over those words? How about we grieve over that? And think ugly about those things. And here's how it all plays out. Proverbs 17 and 14. The beginning of strife is like releasing water. Therefore, stop contention before a quarrel starts. It seems like everything that we study in Scripture that is about coping mechanism for dealing with problems in relationships boils down to some simple principles that we're trying to contain it and we're trying to shorten it. We're trying to involve as few people as possible, keep it from getting bigger, and we're trying to shorten its duration. That, that, that's, that's things that center around our goals. And this passage is warning us that that is a difficult thing to do. That the beginning of strife, it's like when you first release water. So you've got to stop it before things really get rolling. Now when I think about this, I think about my, uh, I've got two brothers, but one close to me in age. And his name is Mike. And we've been friends all night. We've walked out all really well. Great relationship. Very thankful for Mike. And our, uh, back when we were little boys, our grandma had a place out on Wild Horse Creek. I used to walk over along. Really neat place. You come up out of the creek bottom and stand up the side of the hill. And that's where the farm and ranch was. And you go further up and there's low, you know, rolling hills. And there where our step-grandfather pastured his cattle. And it's just really picturesque. And as you break up out of that creek bottom, Wild Horse back before Buckman Trouble Lakes were built. It was a very wide creek bottom. It flooded fairly frequently. I mean, it run a mile wide like the Mississippi River after a lot of rains. And then you come up out of that creek bottom and there were places where ponds were catching the runoff from the upper hills. It was really just a great place for boys to go to play. And we got out there one day east of the old Broom corn shed, and there was a pond up there above the break of the hill that descended down towards the creek bottom. And for some reason, we thought we needed to get around on show and dig a trench from the edge of that pond to the edge of the break in the creek bottom. It's a great idea. And that water started flowing, and it was awesome. And a little bit later, we realized you know what? This water is deepening the trench. and it's about to get really, really hard to stop. We're going to drain Grandma's pond <laughs> if we don't have to do something. So we got busy with the shovel and the rocks and the dirt was flying and we were laughing because we were kind of idiots. <laughs> and we got, we got stopped. But I always think of that story when I think about this passage. It's like letting out water. The longer that water runs, the deeper it digs its own trench. And before long, it gets to a point that it's running so fast and so hard that you can't stop it. And that's the picture he paints when he says what it's like when strife starts. So what do you got to do? 
You've got to get your shovel and you've got to stop that thing as quickly as you can. Cannot let it Cannot let it faster. Because the longer it festers, the more on my pillow in the middle of the night I'm going to stumble on the reasons that I was more right and they were more wrong. And it's just going to get worse. And it's going to keep, and I won't even see that pride is there. I won't even recognize that hate is there very often will be the case. And so there is in this principle the idea of we've got to hit it early, we've got to try to keep it contained, we've got to try to keep it small, and we cannot let it linger. Don't let the water deepen its trench. So it plays out in this folly of I'm right. I mean, you know, one time in a discussion, my wife's like, well, you think you're right all the time. Well, if I didn't think I was right, I would be saying good and stuff here, you know, okay. Well, all right. We both think we're right. That then becomes a cherished goal. The way the fool is right in his own eyes. But he who eats counsel is wise. Look at the parallel. What's the opposite of the guy that thinks he's right? Somebody who's willing to listen to the other point of view. A fool's wrath is done at once, but a prudent man covers shame. Look at the parallel there. On the one hand, you've got something that's quickly known. On the other hand, you've got something that's covered. On the one hand, you've got wrath. On the other hand, you've got shame. You see that? So, see what this passage ties together. The fool that thinks they're right and won't listen to the other point of view is the same fool whose wrath is quickly known. Now you see how these things all tie together? And make the problem worse. So it starts out with I'm right and I'm determined to show that I'm right. And because of a hard to recognize pride, that becomes a primary goal to establish. And even if I've got to get mad and, and mad and do some bluffing and bluster to demonstrate that I'm right. And then that grows into this desire to exonerate myself. It's not enough for me to see that I'm right, but I gotta browbeat them into thinking that I'm right. Proverbs 26, most men will proclaim each his own goodness, but who can find a faithful man? Now I want you to ask you to notice the parallelism here. Here the contrast is between somebody who's proclaiming their own goodness and someone who's faithful. Faithful means fidelity, telling the truth. So you got somebody that's trying to crawl like a fanny rooster and talk about how right they are, and on the other hand, you've got somebody that's honest. Well, now wait a minute. We're not fundamentally dishonest people. We don't go around lying to each other on purpose. We don't do that. I, I believe that. I believe y'all are honest with each other. And I believe you try to be honest with me, and I believe I try to be honest with you. I really believe that in all of us. Here's what we do. You've got a story with all these details. And I'm upset. And I think I'm right. And I'm convinced that that means you must be wrong. And so I'm going to go through and I'm going to emphasize in my mind the details that justify my point of view in my mind. It's not that I'm lying to you. It's just that I'm emphasizing the details that validate where I'm at. Now, if some circumstance arises that I feel a need 
to go and share this struggle with Brian, guess what pieces of the story I'm going to emphasize when I tell it? Well, I'm not going to emphasize the part that's unflattering to me. I might give them passing attention because I've got to be honest. But I want to emphasize the part that exonerates me because everybody wants to feel exonerated. We want to feel validated. That's part of our broken human pride. It's just natural. That's part of living in this house of flesh. And what I did is he had. And what if it grows from there? What if it's something that swells? And that old stream keeps digging its, its trench out more and more deeply. And before long, I've got this version of the story that emphasizes all the details that explain why I think I'm in the right spot. And that other person is doing the same thing with their side of the story, and it looks like we're lying about each other. We're really not. Think about that. From self-exoneration, it goes into team building. Trying to get people on my side. A perverse man sows a strife, and a whisperer separates the best of friends. That sowing of strife, that's trying to tell that story to others and emphasize the details to get them on my side. Because why? Well, if they're on my side, then I feel justified in where I'm at. That increases the chance like I'm building a hedge around myself of others who agree with me. So it decreases the chance of me having to say, well, I guess I was wrong. A false witness who speaks lies and one who sows discord among the brethren. Proverbs 6 and 19. That's a tail end of a list of seven things the Bible says the Lord hates. And it's one of those, these six things that the Lord hates, gave seven or abomination to him. It's uh, used a handful of times in Scripture. It's a literary device that the Hebrews employed that where it's one number, yay, another number, and then it's one number higher. Three, yay, four, six, yay, seven. It worked like that. And the idea was to give the full list. There's really seven things the Lord hates. But what the literary device does is it emphasizes the final item on the list. It says, that's a really bad one. And the really bad one is the person who's sowing discord. Well, I'm not sowing discord. I'm just trying to make them understand. Right? Maybe. Maybe that's what I'm trying to do. <clears throat> this is where I've got to practice rigorous self-examination. Go back to where we were talking about earlier. I've got to stop and ask myself, in what way have I done that? In, in what way have I been like that thing that irritates me? Maybe I need to share that when I figure that out as enthusiastically as I share the other details. So it continually escalates. Look at the story of Esau. All about carnality. He's described in Scripture as a carnal man in the book of Hebrews. And Genesis 27 and 41 says Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father at hand, and then I will kill my brother Jacob. They didn't go to bed one night loving each other and then wake up the next morning and he saw, you know, I think I'll kill you. Let me show you how to Some of you have already fought down this trail. How did this strife between Esau and Jacob start with carnality? You remember the story? Esau come in from hunting and he was hungry. 
What's my birthright to me if I starve to death? Yeah, I'll sell you my birthright for a bowl of that food. Just for the flesh. The seed that's dried or something. And time passed, and occasion came, and that strife grew. And Jacob made his mistakes, too. He was dishonest, and his mother's coaching. There was a lot going on here. And over a period of time, a lot of people making mistakes that in and of themselves in that singular moment may have looked significant but not that big before long evolved and morphed into a brother wanting to kill a brother. That's how it escalates. So it starts out with I'm right, there's that prideful attitude. And then before long, I want a sense of self-exoneration. My personal honor becomes the priority. I've got to feel vindicated. I just could tell you all, I'm ashamed of the times I have just craved exoneration when it was wrong. I'm not going to... There's a reason this stuff occurred to me when I studied this, because I've experienced some of this. I've made some of these mistakes. And there have been times where I've just craved that sense of exoneration. I just want people to know that I didn't do this, or I didn't say this, or I did do this, or I did say that. Well, we got to see that quickly when it's creeping up on us. Because when my personal honor becomes the priority, all of a sudden, it's become selfishness. And I read earlier about selfishness, and I looked at that verse, and I looked at all of us, and I said, we're not selfish people. But it can slip up on the blind side so that I become disconnected from God's agenda because my personal honor has become my priority. Now, what's God's agenda? God's agenda is, number one, ceasefire. But I'm supposed to move beyond that into peace. And then I'm supposed to move deeper into harmony. That's God's agenda. That I would be able to stop the quarreling and work my way down until I finally, I've got harmony. And I lose sight of that and my personal honor becomes the priority. And then I start getting others attached to my personal agenda. And we read verses earlier about sowing strife. And I'll tell you exactly what I thought when I looked at those verses in thought of them being at this point in the outline. I looked at them and said, yeah, but I'm not sowing discord. That's what I thought. When I'm team building, I'm disconnecting others from God's agenda. And the net effect of that is discord. Whether that's in my intention or not. If I take my own agenda and I get others in team building attached to my agenda so that I detach them from God's agenda, the net effect of that is we're going to start coming apart. What can it do but escalate? <laughs> when we got to that point, it's certain to get worse. So that's how it kind of plays out when we let pride and anger and those other negative emotions like hate and jealousy. Clearly disguised though they may be, that's how it plays out. And things that start comparatively small can really get big in a hurry. 
And our answer is to look to the heavenly wisdom of James 3, verse 13 through 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is just so packed. Maybe some of your outstanding teachers can spend some time and break this down. It would probably break nicely into two or three different sermons, but I'm just going to make a quick analysis to conclude our study tonight. The meekness of wisdom, this wisdom that's uh, an earthly way, a carnal way of looking at things, that's not from above, that's earthly, sensual, carnal. That's demonic. The wisdom that's from above, it's peaceful and gentle and it's willing to yield. You see, it's not selfish. It's full of mercy. It's learned to be loving and gracious like we've read in some of these scriptures. It's set out to make peace. So you put those things and on the one side, on the list, you've got the heavenly wisdom and then on the other side, you've got earthly wisdom. And I thought about that and you know there's not a precise corresponding contrast on that list, but there are some. There's not one for every item on the list, but there are some. Meekness court kind of is the opposite of boasting. You've got purity with heavenly wisdom versus every evil thing. You've got peacefulness versus confusion. You can go down to one person there that's full of mercy versus somebody who has bitter envy. You've got somebody with good fruits versus the other person that's just looking out for themselves. You've got somebody who's genuine. They're without hypocrisy. The other person is drifted into dishonesty, even if it's just, you know, by overemphasizing the wrong part of the story. You see those opposites as they come to light. I think that helps us to understand what each of these items teach us and they teach us to be more Christ-like. And the greater degree to which we do that, the greater degree to which we will enjoy peace by trying what we can to eliminate the source of conflict. It's challenging studies, difficult studies, difficult to put together, it's difficult to live it's difficult for me to teach knowing that I haven't always lived these things. But I hope we're all blessed by looking at these things together. I hope you're blessed. And as we bring this study to a close, I hope you think of the blessing, the peace, and the harmony that we can have in Christ. You know that's the only place we can go. And if that's where you have need to go now, either to become a Christian or if as a Christian you need the church to pray for you, we will help you. We can help anyway. We hope you have enjoyed this message recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ. If you have questions concerning this message or would like to set up a study, please call 479-647-2658. May God bless you.